Please take your Bibles this morning and open to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 over in the Old Testament, um, one of the longest major prophets you will find in the Old Testament. We will be in chapter 55 this morning. As you turn there, um, Isaiah is often referred to by scholars as the gospel of the Old Testament. That when you read the gospels in the New Testament, they refer to Isaiah almost more than any other Old Testament book. And that is because, that is because Isaiah includes prophecies about Christ's birth. It includes prophecies about the coming Messiah being the very Son of God. It includes a picture nearly a thousand years before of Christ's crucifixion in Isaiah 53 about God's suffering servant. It foretells of Christ's coming ministry where He will be anointed with the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news to all people. It pictures all of the nations coming to worship God because of the work of this Messiah. But it also foretells about a new covenant. Isaiah tells us about the new covenant that this Messiah will bring, where He will give us new hearts as God puts His very Spirit within us and writes His laws on our hearts, as opposed to on tablets of stone as He had given Moses. Now, this morning, as I open this text to you, I want everybody to stop for just a minute, focus in. I want you to prepare your hearts to hear God's very words to us this morning. I want to be clear as well that if you're in this room and you are an unbeliever, meaning you're someone who has never come to Jesus for salvation, by turning from your sin and laying your life in His hands by faith, then this text of Scripture that we're going to read is particularly for you. So listen intently. You might be skeptical. You might be here and going, I'm not really sure about this Jesus guy. I'm definitely not sure about a lot of things. But I want you to listen. Ask God as I begin right now to speak to you. After all, why are we here? Are we here just to hear music? Are we here just to listen to me speak for 30 minutes? I hope that's not why you're here. I don't want to listen to me talk for 30 minutes. I hope you're here because you're here to hear from God from His Word. Preaching is simply truth through the personality of the preacher. Now, the good news is you might get a lot of truth coming this way, but you're not getting a lot of personality. I mean, I don't have a lot to offer, but I do have God's Word. And that's why we're here. We're here to hear from God's Word. Or maybe you're here and you're a believer, but you're very wayward. You'd be considered a prodigal. You're out sowing your wild oats. You're out doing things that you know are sinful and wrong. And Jesus is walking this way. And though you claim to follow Jesus, everything in your life says you're actually walking this other direction. Then you need to hear this text as well. And so for the rest of us, we are here to listen to God speak. So as Samuel said, let us also say, Lord, speak, for your servant is listening. So right now, let's all say that prayer together. Lord, speak, for your servant is listening. Amen. So turn there to Isaiah 55. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 as we prepare our hearts to hear the word of the Lord. This is what God says through Isaiah. 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, You shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you do not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I want to break this into three very simple sections as we listen this morning intently. First, notice our text begins with a gracious invitation. A gracious invitation. You'll see there in verses 1, one, 2, and 3, five times God offers the invitation to come. Five times God graciously says, come, come, come. Now you can look at that invitation to come two ways. You can look at it from the perspective of personal pride and arrogance. This would be those that would say things like this. Well, of course God would want to invite me. It wouldn't be heaven if I wasn't there. Or they think things like, I deserve to be invited. I would go even if he didn't invite me because I deserve to be there. There are those that think this way when they come to a text when God invites them. Well, of course God would invite me. I absolutely deserve it. The second way of viewing this, the biblical way of viewing this, the contextual way of viewing this, the right way of viewing this is completely the opposite of that. The second way way is seeing the invitation for what it is. That it is a gracious invitation to the undeserving. To the undeserving. Not to the deserving and the prideful and the arrogant, but for those that know I have no business standing in front of this God. Now we know this is the correct view because notice here who God says is invited. Who are those that are invited? It's the thirsty. It's the hungry. It's those that know they are spiritually starving. It's those that have no money. Those that are beggars. Those that are outcasts and downtrodden. Those that know they don't belong at this event. Those that have the humility and the honesty to look at themselves and go, 
I have to cover my face in shame approaching this God who is holy. Now, this would be those that, like Peter, who say to Jesus, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. I cannot even be in your presence. Or like the tax collector in the temple, as the Pharisees mock him, and he's just, he won't even look up to heaven, he just lowers his head and beats his chest, and he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says only one of those went home right with God. It wasn't the Pharisees. It was the tax collector. You see, those are the ones who were invited to come. Those that know they've broken God's law. Those that know they've broken God's covenant. Those that know that they are guilty and under the weight of God's wrath and judgment. Those that know that if they were to close their eyes in death at this very moment and stand before God's judgment, the only right judgment would be Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You are guilty. It is those that are invited. This means, again, hear me, there are those that are not invited. There are no, those that are actually not invited here. Those who insist that they aren't in need. Those that demand to pay for entrance themselves. Those that demand that they have earned a seat at the table. Those that look in others, they look around at others and they go, well, I'm better than them and if they're going to heaven, I certainly am. Those that look at others and go, I'm more deserving than most. I've done more good than bad. I'm more righteous than them. I am satisfied with my moral superiority. I have no need of grace or mercy. I have the money of morality and self-righteousness to spend on my invitation. But you notice, though, that's not the kind of invitation that's given. This is a gracious invitation. God clearly says at the end of verse 1, look what verse 1 says, the end of verse 1, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is the invitation of grace. I'm going to give you what you need. And to make the point even more clear, look at verse 2 again. God clearly says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Isn't that the issue? These are those that have sought satisfaction and meaning and purpose in the things of the world apart from God. I have no place for God. I have no need for God. I have everything I could ever want or dream of. That's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for those who feel as though they are rich and have everything they need to enter into heaven. That's why Jesus says unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jeremiah 2.13 says this, one of the most horrifying verses in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water, and they have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That is the essence, by the way, of sin and rebellion and idolatry. 
It's substituting anything else in God's place. And when you do that, you have carved a broken cistern. You have created something that cannot satisfy your soul. That's what the Bible is talking about. So out of grace and mercy, out of grace and mercy, look what God says at the end of verse 2 and 3. God says this in the invitation. He says, listen diligently to me. Stop listening to your heart. Stop listening to the culture. Stop listening to the world. Stop listening to your sinful desires. Stop listening at everything else in this world that wants to grab your attention. Listen to me. I'm speaking. Listen to me. Listen to what God says. He says, listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me here that your soul may live. Now do you see what God is offering? And again, this isn't about real food. This is a metaphor. God is not saying quit eating the crumbs out of the street and then come to a, a banquet where there is, you know, he's... He's talking about our sin being substituted for himself. And so what does God say? He says, I am offering you myself as the satisfaction of your soul. God, is, God isn't setting up a soup kitchen where the beggars only get what they need to survive. No, God is serving the richest of fare. He is withholding nothing. He is saying, come to me. For all that you desire. Listen to me. Drink of me. Taste and see that I'm good. That I can satisfy all of your deepest longings. Find everything you have, could ever have hoped for or imagined in me. Because nothing in this world can satisfy your soul like me. You were created to be satisfied by me. Come and eat. Come and be filled. Come and find abundant life in me. And that's why Proverbs also says things like this, right? There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is only death. That's why Jesus says the thief has come only to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life. That I am life. Come to me and find life. The first of the Ten Commandments is what? You shall have no other gods before me. And if you keep that commandment, the other nine don't matter. The other nine just show you where you go to look for other gods. Nothing else can satisfy or save your soul or your deepest longings but God. So if you ask the question, well, what is the invitation here? What is this gracious invitation? It is to come and be satisfied in God through Christ, to come and drink from Christ, the water of life, to come and take of Christ, the bread of life, to turn from your broken cisterns and the dog scraps of sin, and to come instead to Christ himself and find joy to the full. Is it any wonder that Jesus says in Matthew 11, he says, come to me, that's the invitation, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest for your soul. Is your soul not restless because of all this world promises and can't deliver? Have you found 
real lasting peace and joy and satisfaction in anything this world really can give you? If you're honest, you know everyone in here, life is short. You only have a certain number of times to make your trip around the sun. And what in this, what in this world has really, what in this world can you really cling to that's going to give you lasting joy and hope? Because everything in this life can be taken from you. Your health, your money, your finances, your family, your form of government, your peace, your security. Nothing is sure. And that's why Jesus says, I am. Come to me. Drink from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In fact, this is the very last, very last verse here. This, this, uh, the first few verses of chapter 55 are the very last verses of your Bible in Revelation 22. The very last thing where it says, The Spirit and bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. That is the invitation. Come and be satisfied. So there's a gracious invitation. And secondly, though, there is a clear command. There's a clear command. Look at verses 6 through 9. In verses 6 through 9, for those that hear the invitation to come and eat, this is what they are to do. If you want to come to the banquet and eat and find satisfaction in God, there are two things that are inseparably linked here. And you can see the first in verse 6. It is this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Seek, look, call, knock, ask. Is that not what Jesus said? Ask and it will be, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask and you will, it will be given to you. Here it is seek and call. The assurance here is that if we seek and if we call upon the Lord, He will be found. He will not be distant or hidden or unapproachable. He will draw near to those who come to him for life. Do you hear that? He doesn't draw near to those that ask him for material blessings and those that want everything this world has to offer and wants to win the lottery and drive a Ferrari or, or have God strike down their neighbor who annoys them. That's not what God promises. He promises to draw near to those who come to him for life. So if you're not coming to him for joy and life and satisfaction, there is no promise that he will draw near to you. Because you're not actually looking for him. You're looking for stuff. He's not a cosmic Santa Claus here to answer your every whim. He promises to draw near to those who draw near to him for life and satisfaction. But notice there's a warning here. He says you must seek and call while he may be found. And while he is near. Those are temporal terms. This implies that while God is speaking to you and while God is inviting you, you must respond. You do not put it off. This is why Hebrews says several times, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is why the Bible chides um, Esau and says that Esau couldn't find repentance even though he sought it with tears because the time had passed for repentance 
Now, that is scary, and that is mysterious, and I don't know the answer, but let me tell you that one of the greatest lies that people believe is that they can come to Jesus on their terms or in their, or in their chosen time. I'll just let that sit for a second. There are those who say, teenager, well, when I get out of high school and I, and, I stop, and I decide I don't want to have fun anymore and I'm going to quit running around doing the things I want, when I get out of high school and I go to college, I'm going to walk with Jesus. Or when they get to college, they find out it's not any easier. And then they go, well, when I get out of college, I'm going to choose to walk with Jesus. Or then they go, well, I really like college. It was a lot of fun. You know what? I'm going to put it off again. When I get married, I'm going to walk with Jesus. Or then when I have kids, then I'm going to choose to walk with Jesus. Or, or when my kids leave my house and I'm an empty nester, then I'm going to choose. Do you see where this is going? And then they go, well, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to turn and walk with Jesus. Well, you know, Jesus tells a parable about that, about the man who had a lot of barns, and he was going to store up everything in his barns because he's going to eat, drink, and be merry and have all that he ever wanted. And Jesus says this, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. You see, none of us know when we're going to punch our ticket out of this life. And when Jesus is graciously inviting you and calling you to repentance, you do not put it off because the Bible says in Romans 1 that God gives them over to their desires. And God says, if you don't want me, then you can have everything else you want. And you're given over to your desires. Now, that is scary. And you know what? That's the point. You know I'm not a hellfire and brimstone kind of guy. I don't get up here and yell on that, yell and scream at you. But truth is truth. Truth is truth. And there are those that think they can just put it off and come to Jesus on their own time and their own choosing, and you don't know that. Because if your heart won't come to Jesus now, who's to say it will later? Be serious about it. And then notice the second thing. Not only seek and call, but here's the other one. Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. That is called repentance. We seek the Lord by coming to Him, seeking Him and repenting of our sinful thinking, our sinful desires, our sinful motivations, our sinful desire to rule our lives as our own Lord and Savior, as our own King, our sinful actions. Listen, we sin by choosing something over God. And we repent by turning from that and turning to Him, by choosing Him as first, as supreme, as ultimate, as our everything. So there's a gracious invitation, a clear command, seek, call, repent. And then third, there's a gospel promise. Look at verses at the end of verse 7 and verse 9. Notice the gospel promise here. He says... That God may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That is compassion, mercy, pardon. If you call upon him, seek him and repent, find joy and life in him, he will have compassion and he will abundantly pardon. That is an unbelievable promise. That is good news to the undeserving. That God would graciously invite us to Himself and give us Himself over this world. That He would forgive us. That He would call us to repentance. And that He would accept us. 
That he would receive us as sons and daughters and abundantly pardon. I'm sorry, my nose is running. The promise would be that he would cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. That though our sins make us as scarlet, he will wash us as white as snow. That is unbelievable. And that is the same gospel that his son, the Messiah, came bringing. Right? The same gospel that the promised Messiah, the suffering servant, God's messenger, says, repent and believe the gospel. Come and find life and joy in me. And that is almost too good to be true. For those of us that really believe the gospel, we struggle to believe the gospel. For those of us that really grasp the gospel, we go, that is just, that's too good to be true. How can I, how can that be true? And God knows we will struggle to believe the goodness of this offer. And that's why he says in verses 8 and 9, hey, I know you're going to struggle, but look at, look at what verses 8 and 9 say. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That is the contrast here. Exchange our sinful thoughts with God's thoughts, our sinful ways with God's ways, and that's the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that God will change our hearts and desires from the inside out. That he will shape us and conform us and give us new hearts and give us new desires. And we will not chase after the things of the world, but we will find satisfaction in Jesus and we will be new creations. And when you understand that, you go, how can these things be? How can God forgive us of our sins? How can God pardon us when he is holy and righteous and he must punish sin that is the greatest problem in the whole bible how can a just and holy god remain just and do what is right and yet pardon wicked sinners who deserve judgment well let me give you the news that's where isaiah 53 comes in this is isaiah 55 I don't know about you, but most of us read things top to bottom, left to right, and you get to Isaiah 53 before you get to Isaiah 55. Well, flip back to Isaiah 53 and let Isaiah answer the question, how can God forgive sinners? Isaiah 53, verse 10. If you're there, say amen. This is how God does it. Look at here. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Father has put this person to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. They're not righteous. This servant is going to account them as righteous. Why? For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's how God can give us good news. Because his son was stricken on our behalf. That he took the punishment we deserved. And the chastisement that became our peace was laid upon him. By his stripes we are healed. 
It is because Jesus stood in our place. And that's why we sing songs, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let me tell you what the gospel does. This is the good news, that Jesus would take my sin and judgment and instead give me himself. Give me life, give me forgiveness, and give me hope. And only the gospel can do that. But people don't believe it. Well, let me end by this story of Mel Trotter. I've used this illustration before, but it's one of my favorite. One of my favorites. Mel Trotter was born in 1870 in Orangeville, Illinois. So not very far, up, just the state up. To an alcoholic bartending father and a Christian mother, Mel Trotter had little schooling. By age 19, he was drinking and gambling heavily. And in 1891, he met and married Lottie Fisher. So he's now 19 and has a wife. But sadly, Mel continued to drink and gamble, causing his family to lack even the basic necessities. The story goes on that his wife tried to scrape by, but their two-year-old son became gravely sick. And Lottie gave Mel money to go to the pharmacy and buy medicine that their son desperately needed. But on the way to the pharmacy, Mel passed some of his drinking buddies who convinced him to go to the bar with him instead. He used the money for his son's medicine to binge drink for 10 days. And when the money ran out, he stumbled home to find his two-year-old son dead on the couch. How does that story hit you? He promised his grief-stricken wife he'd never drink again, but in less than two hours, he broke that promise. He made it two hours. Good on him. He ended up homeless, abandoning his family, suicidal in Chicago. On his way to drowning himself, he was pulled inside the Pacific Garden Rescue Mission, and there he heard the gospel for the first time, that God would save even a wretch like him. And he cried out to Jesus for mercy. And you know what? He found it. He found it. Jesus changed his life. He conquered his addiction, found a job, was reunited with his wife, and became active in the very mission that saved his life. And in January 1900, he went with the mission superintendent to Grand Rapids, Mission, Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he became the superintendent of a new mission. And it is still there today. The testimony of his life was that God will save from the guttermost to the uttermost those who draw near to Jesus by him. And it's not because he's righteous. It's because Jesus is merciful. I've met far too many people that think they're beyond the power of Jesus to save. Not the Jesus of the Bible. Yeah, you might, you might think of a Jesus that's not able to save, but the problem is that Jesus you're thinking of doesn't exist. The Jesus of the Bible is able. There is no sin too great or, or life too ruined that Christ cannot graciously heal and redeem. So this morning, that's the invitation. Come. Seek. Repent, eat, find life in Jesus. And that requires 
You being willing to die to yourself and find him. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would take the preaching of your word and you would apply it deeply to her heart. I pray right now, Father, I believe you're speaking. I believe there's a child, a student, a young adult. Father, there might even be a middle-aged, senior adult, other, who is here, and they, they would say that Jesus is speaking. And if you're speaking, Jesus, I pray that they would graciously hear. I pray, Father, they would not try to put this off. Father, they would be serious about the business of heaven. And they would come in repentance and find life in Jesus. Father, speak now. We pray this in Christ's name.